This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we speak to UK designer Thomas Heatherwick about his new book, Humanise. In it, he hopes to change the public discourse around architecture. Plus, we talk sustainability with Swiss brand Vizug. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. First on today's show, a conversation with British designer Thomas Heatherwick. Since founding his namesake studio in 1994, he's designed everything from the cauldron for the 2012 Summer Olympics to the new Azerbaijan Hills mixed-use development in Tokyo. He's also written a new book, published by Penguin. Called Humanise, it's a manifesto to end what Thomas calls architecture's global blandemic. The publication has been met with friction in some architectural circles, and that's perhaps understandable, with the designer pointing out that much of what is built today is dictated by responses to questions like how much does it cost to build and how much money will the building make when it's sold? In response to this, Thomas is pushing for architects to create buildings that are interesting and able to hold the attention of people passing them on the street. Architects, he says, can deftly employ repetition and complexity as tools to do this. To elaborate more, Thomas joined me in the studio and he started by explaining why he sat down to write the book. The reality is the amount of projects I'm likely to do with my amazing team in the next 30 years, if I'm lucky enough to go that long, it doesn't change cities and towns. And it's lovely to do special projects and I think people appreciate them. But change will only really happen at scale. And we've been engulfed in soulless, sterile buildings that get demolished, which is terrible for the environment. And we all know it. And it's not a question of niceness. And there's starting to be neuroscience that's really showing that it's, it, these buildings put us into stress, which sounds like melodramatic. How can you say that, Thomas? Isn't this just something about taste? But no, actually, we sort of stumbled into a trend that became an orthodoxy where a whole profession largely adopted one style and one mindset and got very authoritarian about it. And it's become, it's a century old and it's made really inhuman places for the majority of people outside buildings. Great environments inside for many people, but public life, if we think of public service, it's actually been diminished in many ways. And I don't mean copy the past. There are many ways to be human. I mean, I want to build on that last phrase, you know, and the idea that there are many ways to be human. How do architects and designers start to engage with people and make their buildings human? Do you have any thoughts or observations around that from researching for the book? I realised that there's no public conversation. And until we really have us all speaking about buildings, but everyone feels powerless. Everyone thinks, well, I'm not a developer. I'm not a planner. I'm not an architect. How can, you know, and and so in a way people put their blinkers on and just carry on with life. And accept things, as I guess. And accept things. And and the thing is that industry gives awards to itself. There was even a debate in the UK a few years ago where leaders in the field of building design all came together and they, they had an evening debating, do the opinions of the public matter? 
And then at the end of the evening, after debating, they took a vote. And they voted no. Which is which is Which is terrifying. shocking. <laughs> How can you say the opinions of the public don't matter? So there's there's not a problem of care. It's a mindset problem that so, we've had and got stuck in. There's there's this kind of sneering group think. I'm taking from a podcast I heard from you. From you. I think it was Owen Hopkins said that. Yep. And he's absolutely right. So the reason for the book, the reason it's written in plain English, it's not written for architects and other design and other people like me. It's written for all of us. It's written for a 12-year-old or a 99-year-old. And it's, it's trying to actually share the excitement and the incredible opportunity that exists. If we, if we could all actually talk about buildings, it'll supercharge things for architects, for planners, for developers, and for society. And that's, that's why we're launching this campaign. Just building on that sentiment that architecture is for everyone, you, you talk in your book about the fact that, you know, we need to focus on on the outsides of buildings and, and how they interface with the street just as much as we do need to think about the interior spaces. Can you explain a little bit why, I guess, the, the exterior is significant? The profession spends a lot of time, a very good quality time, actually thinking about the insides of buildings. And my experience, and I'm, again, I'm generalising, is that 90% more than that of, of buildings, when you go inside, are pretty good. There's pretty good daylight. It's pretty good experience, pretty good atrium, pretty good ceiling height. They're pretty good. But the outsides, and let's, let's be clear, it, it's been become unfashionable to actually talk about the outsides much because words like vanity subjectivity, beauty, all these words where people think, ugh, it's somehow petty and unsophisticated start being used. And there's an attitude about outsides that it's good to be subtle, rigorous, clean lines, all of these things. And when we think about public experience and users of buildings, arguably the biggest users of buildings in cities and towns are the people who will never go inside them. A thousand times more people will be walking past the outsides of so many of the buildings and cities. And actually, we're not caring about them and measuring them and really putting ourselves in the shoes of those people. And as I mentioned earlier, when I said about that vote that said the opinions of the public don't matter... And it's, I'm not really, I'm not here doing a mass advocacy for endless consultation, stifling everything. I'm really advocating for a mindset, which is to be really curious about feelings. And one of the biggest things, really, we talk about form follows function, and it sounds great. Hmm. And, it, and actually, in my studio's work, I would argue that we are following form and f form following function. But... Within that, emotion is treated as, as a function. And that's the thing that fell away, is a profession shifted to a very cerebral way of seeing itself. And that was part of modernism. You know, there was this fascination for the mind and the unconscious. And uh, it, it was a very exciting time and there were new technologies coming up for making but we forgot that we're, in a sense, we are emotional feeling beings. And if you listen, you go to 
crits, you go, you read those papers, they're not actually really engaging with the feeling, us as feeling beings. And so we've got one of the biggest industries on the planet, construction industry, responsible in its entirety for almost 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. And it's not measuring the biggest experiences and how they feel. We're talking about feelings and, and making buildings interesting and exciting to look at. And and this isn't about being, being you know, silly or, or doing something like the Longerberger Basket Company, whose headquarters in Ohio are actually shaped like one of its baskets. You're not advocating for that, are you? My argument is not that every building needs to be a crazy shape or a basket or whatever it was. But actually, our challenge is, how do we get into the human scale, which doesn't need to be the shape of massive buildings, but our emotion is most actually at street level. And so that's about the landscape, and it's about the first... I mean, with, with the master planning we've been doing in San Jose in California, we could talk about the first 40 foot. Mm. And that experiencing level, where you notice little details and... The neuroscientist Colin Ellard and various different neuroscientists have really been now adding this new dimension. So it's not just, oh, this is Thomas's opinion or this is uh, Nick's opinion or whoever's opinion. They've been looking at what our brains need to thrive. And what we've had is flat, plain, monotonous, serious, shiny, plain, repetitive surface making of buildings and that might have seemed modest that might have seemed rational all of these things but actually the science of our brains is now starting to show us that our brains need complexity every second we are noticing and perceiving 11 million bits of information and so when you're walking along a street to be nourished by that street approximately every five seconds your eye needs to see change and difference. If you take that away, you're starving your brain. In effect, your brain is starting to go into stress. And that's what different neuroscientists like Colin Ellard have started to show us. So I'm not here saying, oh, let's make every building curved or let's make every building go back to the past and copy lovely classical details or everything should be very square. I don't mind. But what we have had is an epidemic of boringness, which is a weird word to use. But what's interesting is 94% of people, when you put building designs down in front of them with a whole selection of words, positive and negative, the buildings that the neuroscientists, that they say are boring, 94% of us all pick that word for them. And agree. So, I mean, so a, it's not as subjective. It, so we're not talking about beauty. I'm, you notice I'm not using the word beauty because I think that goes down a rabbit hole. That was Thomas Heatherwick. We'll be right back with more from that conversation after this. There's a chill in the air. It's time to hunker down with the new winter issue of Confect. Let us whisk you to high-altitude resorts for cross-country skiing and guide you to handsome stop-offs around Europe and beyond for a spot of Christmas shopping. Our sparkling brand-new jewellery special explores the allure of wearing beautiful pieces for special soirees and everyday elegance. 
From snowy chalets to bountiful wreaths and tree decorations, our design pages will inspire and inform your winter interiors. Our food section will deliver all you need for a season of joyful hosting, from recipes to fine wines. This issue is full of winter wonder and adventure. We head to the Himalayan peaks of Nepal to check in at an extraordinary inn and cultural fulcrum, and you'll find us shussing through fresh powder in Europe's undiscovered snow hole. Finally, indulge, reset, and dive into Iceland's thermal pools as we tell tales of island folklore and draw inspiration from sublime volcanic vistas. Confect's winter issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at confectmagazine.com. Welcome back. Let's dive straight into it and pick up our conversation with Thomas Heatherwick. Thomas, I know from speaking to you off air that to make a building interesting, or at least at least what you've documented in your book, uh, you know, a, a structure should be able to hold our attention for the amount of time it takes to pass it. So by definition, this means, you know, you've got to consider its ability to be interesting at the city distance when we're viewing it on the skyline, to be interesting and engaging at the street distance when we're sort of viewing it from a block away, and, and then to be, you know, interesting again from the door distance when you're right up close with it. I guess with this perspective in mind, how do you propose that we bring or legislate interest and emotion into architecture and how do we bring that to the fore? Our emotion is most at the door distance. And when we look at planning regulations around the world, cities tend to have a good sense of what you should do at a distance. Well, even if they don't, they've got policies about buildings at the city distance. How high, happy. How high, yeah. massing, all of the, these kinds of things. Then there's, there are often policies at the street distance, but we're finding there's hardly any policies at door distance that mandate interestingness. I mean, it's, it's, it's so simple in that we, in fact, the head planner in Singapore, she said this, but they're amazing in Singapore. They're really up for uh, human, reinventing how you legislate for humanness. And she was just saying, buildings don't tell stories anymore. It was so powerful, her just saying that. We've ended up with this sort of the same story again and again and again. And there was nothing wrong with what Mies van der Rohe did or Corbusier did with the first buildings. But the problem is the conservatism that thinks it's the way. And we then repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And so actually, the argument really is for diversity. And when I've seen manifestos and the international movement, they tend to be for one way. I'm not arguing for one way. I'm just arguing to actually understand better the neuroscience of how humans are to supercharge diversity and creativity. And the world of building design says quite proudly, quite often, you know, we are the intersection of science and art. And it sounds so good. It does. But in reality, I believe it's been largely neither. We don't measure. And there's a well-known thing. So if we talk about the science side, it's quite known in the tech world in so many in entrepreneurial aspects of life and in government that you can't change what you can't measure. And we've not been measuring 
what the biggest experiences of buildings actually feel. I mean, what happens if we do start tracking emotional responses to architecture? You know, where and what people's eyes are drawn to or, or how their heart rate changes when they pass a building. Is there a way that we can use this information? I actually think what comes back from that will be so interesting for designers to respond to. Whether that's students, professional designers to go, oh, oh, what? look how people feel about different kinds of materials, different kinds of details. Not to do what... Do what you think the public are telling you to do. But what do they say? Knowledge is power. We don't have that knowledge. So that's on the science side. And there's neuroscience. We can now see where people's eyeballs are looking. We can read the emotion now better than ever in people's eyes. The, some of the gaming headsets watch. They can see emotion from the way the muscles are, the tiny muscles around your eyes. So I think we're coming into a time which could be really revolutionary for the world around us. But then also the other side, really, is we've got to unleash the artistic side. And we think of, if you got 40 artists and saw all their work, how different it would all be from each other. But, it, and, and there's, there's actually a neuroscientist who studied architecture who says this. He said, I wasn't being taught to design a building. I was being taught a style. And so there was actually an indoctrination process. So the education system has to change to be much more open, to be teaching technical, but not be teaching one style and thinking it's the uber art. It's one of many and it's a huge collaboration. I mean, I don't work alone. I've got a massive team. It's not good when the ideas in our projects come from me. The best ones, you don't even know where they came from. And we need that mindset, I believe, of collaboration at scale with unexpected people. I mean, who, which building designer wouldn't like to work with Bjork? Like, what would happen there with a building? What would happen with Wes Anderson? What do you think historically has stopped us doing this, you know, in engaging across disciplines or, or approaching architecture in a way that melds science and art? I mean, the, the, the elephant in the room is money. It's like, aren't you saying, isn't this expensive? You're just dreaming. Ah. In reality, I think that we, we worry too much about heights of buildings. I learned this in Hong Kong, actually, where you could be in a, a street where there were really tall towers, these chopstick towers. And you think, how comes I feel good here? And it was because of the diversity and interestingness at the street scale. That care for the first 40 feet. That yeah. care at that scale. Call that landscape, call that furniture design. It's almost like interior design of those, the feelings, the door distance. That's in the book we talk about door distance. But it's not about doors. It's about the feelings and impressions you're giving people, your generosity. So I'd rather you gave a property developer, like, okay, have another floor, build another floor, make money from another floor, but you've got to use that money on the ground floor to bring life to the first floor and some to the second floor because then the street will be more interesting. And I guess just finally, this book is out now and you're hoping it's being read by people beyond the architecture industry as well as architects themselves. But, I mean, for the generalist reader, what do you hope that they take away from it? For me, success will be in 10 years that just in the way we talk, people would say, don't give me a boring building. Is this interesting? And the planners feel confident to use those words because at the moment, words like beauty are being thrown around a lot. And 
what people don't realize as clients, as developers, as society, as politicians, when they say to building designers, you need to do something beautiful, that building designer underneath is saying, F you, <laughs> because they think that's subjective. I'll tell you what's beautiful. But boring, actually, society all knows. And so I'm trying to move it to something that's relatively objective and that we can engage with. And who wants to actually do boring buildings? Do you really? Who? Who? I want someone to look me in the eye and say, I want to do boring buildings. They don't. There's a difference. There are background buildings and there can be foreground buildings. The whole world can't have buildings that are all opera houses screaming and shouting and Bilbao Guggenheims that are amazing. I'm not arguing for that. The book is about everyday buildings and how do we make the everyday building have human qualities? And it's got tools in there about how to look and the, the moves that you can make. My thanks to Thomas Heatherwick there. His book, Humanize, A Maker's Guide to Building Our World, is published by Penguin and available at all good bookstores now. What's that coming over the hill? It's the latest edition of The Forecast, an annual magazine from the editors of Monocle that looks forward to the year ahead. The 2024 issue is brimming with thought-provoking and visually compelling journalism. Here are three things you will learn inside. One, which global cities are on the up? Our fifth Small Cities Index showcases the 25 places around the world offering the best of urban living in a more compact package. Two, how the shipping industry is using vintage sail ships to transport its wares. Three, which small Greek city has become a hub for artists and designers? Find out what 2024 holds in store. Pick up a copy of The Forecast from your local newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com slash subscribe. Finally on today's show, we're considering greenwashing and consumers' expectations around eco-friendly products. To do so, we paid a visit to the London showroom of Swiss appliance specialists Vizug. Monocle's Grace Charlton caught up with Aaron Haynes, Vizug's new managing director in the UK. Vizug has been around for 110 years in Switzerland and the domestic market there is enormous for them. The exciting part of being part of this international expansion is that it's a new exciting brand and in markets like the UK where we're relatively unknown, but we view that as a positive because it's an exciting brand to talk about and the product speaks for itself in many ways, but we're here to deliver that message around what it means to be Vizog. So maybe tell me a little bit more about this message. A big part of Vizog is sustainability. How do you make sure it's not just a buzzword that brands throw around? It's, yeah, it's an important question because there are a lot of brands that claim to be sustainable or have green credentials, but when you dig a little deeper and you see it's in everything that Vizuk does from cradle to the grave of the product, from inception until the end of the life of the product, which we hope through the sustainable message and through the means that we put into the product that it lasts for a very, very long time. 
do consumers really care about sustainability or do they just want a stove or an oven that works and doesn't break down? Do you feel like maybe Vizu can change this mentality? We're living in extraordinary times at the moment. I think to a degree that a lot of people may want sustainable for various reasons. Some may care more about the economics of the product, but I can tell you with certainty that our view is that um, more and more people are coming along with this message. I was recently in Maui when the fires happened. I flew over Vancouver, which was on fire entirely. I had family that were in Greece for the fires recently. The climate is changing and we have no choice as custodians of this arc that we're on to ensure that what we're producing in emissions and what products we're using are sustainable and are not contributing to the problem. At the same time, we're delivering product which delivers an amazing experience from both design to usage to actual the output of the product as far as food that you eat and clean clothes that you wear. So we're not compromising in any way in what we're delivering on that message. And maybe throwing to a wider issue beyond Vizog, but I don't know if you would like to comment on what kind of help, legislative or otherwise, from governments do you think it will take for big design firms to move towards more circularity? Well, we always prefer for the individuals to make the choice. We also are very pleased and happy to work with governments around the world who seek to improve the efficiencies of products to mandate that. We also want to lead the way in, in, in being ahead of the curve, but by demonstrating what we can do in creating a product that is uncompromising in quality, yet pushes the boundaries as far as energy usage, water usage, and its actual just sustainability overall. We believe that the government agencies that do regulate will make the right choices. Currently, gas is being looked at as far as being phased out for various reasons, health-wise and, and emissions-wise. And while we have gas product that we have available, um, we think it's highly efficient. And um, we're definitely finding that now we're, we're looking at phasing out gas in, in the long term, regardless of if it's legislated or not. I, I think that governments will make their choice, but we also need to lead. Aaron Haynes there in conversation with Monocle's Grace Charlton. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by May Lee Evans and edited by Jack Dewars. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.